Hello. Hello. We have to move you up there, or, or I have to look down at you. Oh. <laughs> You're side by side for me. Oh, okay. Kevin has to erase himself. You never want to erase Kevin. <laughs> Ever. That's silly. Busy day. What is what? Is, I love your shirt. Love is my superpower. I love it. That's what we needed today. We needed this yes. t-shirt day today. I just got see. Ooh. Asian theme going on. Ooh. And then these cool earrings, little yin and yang. Yes. I thought it's cool. I yes. never wear gold, but they were just so cool. I had to do it. You're always cool. What are you talking about? I don't know. Cool is like not my thing. <laughs> I beg to differ. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's like a hundred degrees literally here today. So it's a bit of a tank top day today. This is this is the Portland version of a hundred degrees, which is 76. Oh, but that's very nice. Yes, it is. Yes. Exactly. Let me see. I today seems to be the day for thank yous. Yes, we have a lot to unpack today, and um, tell me our theme will definitely be encompassing some thank yous. Yeah, I got the. Please, where is it? I got the coolest email uh, email from. A, there it is. Just, just out of the blue, something I didn't expect. It was so, it was so nifty. You ready? Yep. Okay. So, the um, the subject line is "Thank you, Carol." Hi, Carol. There's no reason for you to remember me from a course at Cleveland Clinic four or five years ago. In March, I left my 20-year practice of anesthesiology to walk my talk and stop just complaining about the shitty care. Can we say that? That patients get these days. So I am now a plain old country GP smiling. Um, I just finished a four hour session with a lady in her early forties with hypermobility. We know how to treat that and a 20 year, 20 plus year history of POTS diagnosis who's been housebound and nearly bed bound for three months since having COVID. She has lost over 20 pounds on a very small person to begin with. Fortunately, I had the thought, I wonder if there's anything FSM can do for POTS. And I dug into the material from the last couple of years, four hours of FSM, and she is a different person for the better. It is really emotionally exhausting to see such a change so quickly and to know that there are so many people who suffer due to ignorance on the part of themselves and their physicians. So thank you for all the work and risk that you've endured over the years to make this tool available and to train people like myself to use it. Ed Pomichter, MD. And he's right. There was a whole group of DOs, MDs, PTs, and OTs at Cleveland Clinic about five years ago. It was a big class. We had a great time. And this is completely out of the blue. And it's like, yes. Why do you go to Cleveland in January? Because of Ed. (laughs) Because you never know when there's going to be an Ed. That five years later does something impossible. Right. But if it happened, then it's not really impossible. Right. Kevin is fixing you. Kevin can't stand something any longer. So then Kevin makes an appearance and he fixes something. Wait, your line line isn't turning off. There, I got it. You can drag him around. There we go. Got it. Now we're side by side on my screen. Oh, good. There. Um, Let's talk about this for a second, because it's not just like a brag. You know, you never do anything just to brag. Do you know that? 
Well, it's ridiculous to even think about bragging because I didn't do anything. I, it's like FSM does it. Okay. But if it didn't work, then what would be the point? This is the moment it? where I wish we were in person so I could turn to you and grab you by the shoulders like I do with my children and just go, shh, stop. Well, it could smack me upside the head is what I think you're saying. <laughs> no. One of the reasons why I wanted to teach so badly is so we could spread this the right way with the right people. Because once you change one person's life, it's like an addiction. And it's crazy to think that you're going to treat the world or you're going to treat a fraction of the world. But if you can teach other people to do this, and I get the passion that you and George started because you do it once and you're just like, I got to do this again. And then you do it again and you do it again and it's reproducible. And that is why you have to teach it Yeah, and teach it well. Mm -hmm. it, you really do. And I keep, I keep learning. And so in, where were we? Denver. You know how I do that thing at the end of the day where we have patients come in? Well, I kind of forgot how many people that we had coming in. So we had three of them between 6.30 and 8-ish. One of them was a CRPS patient. Two years, four years, two years or four years? Two years or two years chronic um, stress fracture. Surgery on the stress fracture of stress fracture that became a non-union because she's a collegiate soccer player on an athletic scholarship. So she kept playing on this stress fracture and then it became a non-union. So they did a surgery to put a plate in and they took the plate out because she got CRPS after the plate. And then she had that desensitization PT where she had to go in and touch it and she kept playing. So in 20, the first time I treated CRPS was 24 years ago. Can you explain CRPS a little bit? Cause there are people that list that are listening that don't know what it is. Oh yeah. Complex regional pain syndrome is we used to call it reflex sympathetic dystrophy. RSD. RSD. And the was confusing because it didn't have anything to do with reflexes. It did have something to do with the sympathetics and it only became dystrophic if they really messed around with it and messed it up. So then they locked probably 10 neurologists in a hotel room over a weekend and made them come up with a new name and they called it complex regional pain syndrome, which doesn't really mean anything either, but basically some peripheral injury happens that make that creates enough inflammation that the nerves disconnect. Where's my hand? There's my hand. That the nerves that attach to the blood vessels disconnect. It's a denervation problem. So the standard treatment for, well, the standard presentation for CRPS is the leg is cold, it's dry, because the sympathetics are disconnected, um, the circulating epinephrine and norepinephrine that's put out by your adrenal glands attach to the same receptors, but there's no disconnect. If the sympathetic nerves are connected, it's very tightly regulated. I'm a little bit nervous. My hands get a little bit cold. I'm really, really, really terrified. Then my hands get really, really cold and they get wet. So the sympathetics make vasoconstriction and sweat. Yeah. So if you disconnect the sympathetics, you get, well, no sweat, it's dry and the hair falls out because the blood supply to the hair follicles is cut off because the epinephrine and norepinephrine from your adrenal glands will bind to the receptors in the blood vessels, but not the sweat glands. 
Are you okay? Yes. Okay, you're not. There we go. So um, the confusing part about this is she had pretty good physical therapy. It is the first time ever that I've heard of Botox being used. That's a good face in the spine to fix the nerves. Usually they just do an epidural at T12. Mm -hmm. This was down on her right ankle, uh, right second metatarsal. And so I expected to find cold, dry, no hair. What I found was hyperesthesia and stubble. And I said, did you shave your legs? Yeah. You have hair on your legs? Yeah. Okay. That's different. And then I felt her leg and it was damp. So it's, and it was a teensy bit colder, but not really. Hmm. So in 27 years, it, it was the first ever CRPS I've ever seen like that. So you, Kevin teases me because I, every time I segue, I say, so you treat what you find. And so the, the physical exam was just soft touch. And she was hypersensitive to the soft touch about 20 centimeters above her lateral malleolus. <clears throat> so I just tucked her up from her knee because it's peripheral to her toes. And I ran 40 and 396 and it reduced inflammation in the nerve. And I had a second machine and we ran 40 and 562 to quiet the sympathetics because she was sweating. Now, if it was dry, you still quiet the sympathetics until the very end. But we just did 40 and 562. And then inside of five or six minutes, maybe 10 minutes, the hyperesthesia had moved down almost 10 centimeters and made a little ink mark. And then, and it took about an hour and we kept making ink marks on her leg. As it came up. And as it went down to normal, and there was this one spot that was really like, you knew that she didn't want me to touch it. And she said, it's right there. It's like, okay. So I didn't touch it. And then we crept up on it until it was, there was this little bullseye of ink marks. And then it went away. And so her pain level went from a seven to a two and she's an athlete. She continued to play soccer. So it didn't really disconnect from her brain. The way I got rid of the final teensy bit of hypersensitivity was 40 and 92. So normally with CRPS, they are centralized because the pain is so bad. But she's an athlete, so you don't want to turn down her ability to suppress the pain. So I just left the midbrain and the thalamus alone. But that hyperesthesia, okay, you guys ready? All right, I want you to think along with me. The hyperesthesia, when you've had pain for that long, you know the homunculus that's in your sensory cortex? Okay. There's a great big place for your face and your lips and your fingertips. And then the next big place is your foot because your sensory cortex has to know where your foot is. Well, when you've had pain for that long, the sensory map expands. So I couldn't, using 40 and 396, 81 and 396 made it worse. So I went back to 40 and I couldn't get it to go away. Okay, maybe it's the sensory cortex. Create a hypothesis. And I did 40 to quiet the activity of the sensory and motor cortex. And five minutes? Could rub her foot, 
right over the nasty spot. And she went, yeah, that's gone. Her pain level went from a seven to a one in 60 minutes. She came back the next night and it was still a one or a two. The little area of hyperesthesia was still the size of a lentil. And we did, got rid of that, got that back to a zero. And then we did, made her move. So I put wrap around her neck. I'm not used, so I had to make it up and pretend to be Kim and put wraps around her ankles and had her walk 81 and 84. 81 and 92 and oh first 40 and 84 so to tell the cerebellum it's like remember everything you thought you knew about that foot just forget about that just no no foot no foot at all okay now new foot 81 and 84 and you could watch her and I had her just in place we didn't have any unstable surface for her to play on so I just had her move in place, stand on her toes, stand on her heels, rock from side to side, weight shift, whatever. And you could watch the muscles in her foot try and figure out how to move. The, the second night before we did all the movement stuff, I basically tore apart all the scar tissue in her foot, scarring in the nerve, scarring in the bone, torn and broken, you know, that picture in netter of all the little muscles in the foot. Imagine if the mechanics in your foot are completely wrong, whacked out. Cattywampus is the word that you like to use. Cattywampus, exactly. <clears throat> so I ran torn and broken in the connective tissue. If you look at the muscles in the foot, they all have broad, flat tendons. There's not a round tendon except for the toes. Her toes were fine. It was the scar tissue was all in the bottom of her foot. And when we got rid of the scar tissue, she said, no, there's still a thing right there. And what she was pointing to was the joint at the first, at the metatarsal tarsal joint at, in the arch. So when they did the surgery on the second metatarsal, it bled down and scarred the joint capsule between the first metatarsal and whatever that little, is it a cuboid or whatever that bone is? Yeah. Yeah. I had to memorize it for anatomy, but you know, it's that little thing. And so I ran scarring in the joint capsule, um, 91 calcification or hardening in the joint capsule and then mobilized that joint and then scarring in the nerve and just kept at it and uh, reduce inflammation in the periosteum, deep old bruise, because it was actually a deep old bruise. Right. And then once the bottom of her foot was no longer scarred, then you could do weapon mode, but yep. you had to get the physical peripheral tissue normal first. So that was, that was Sunday night. And Kevin is so patient. He had 10 tables to take down, nine tables to take down and pack up. And I'm sitting there with eight or 10 people sitting around watching us do this thing with the foot. And Kevin's just packing up. And it's just, it's so much fun. I'm sort of mad that you didn't FaceTime me throughout all of this, because this is like, what gets me out of bed in the morning, these cases? Well, it was, it was what was weird was cold and and it wasn't wet when it's brand new in the yeah. you can get CRPS in the first 24 hours they are dripping. The sympathetics are totally jacked up. Yeah. And the first 24 hours is easy. By the time it gets to be cold and dry, then it's a little trickier. Right. Heidi posted the whole thing on. Oh, Heidi. Whoa. Took a video of it. Well, I don't know. Oh, Heidi Marcus took, um, is, it's on the practitioner page. Work on a four, oh, it was a four-year CRPS patient. Dissipated. Work on a young girl. I worked on a young girl today and had success decreasing excruciating pain, which began on the upper calf and shin to just a large opal on the dorsal foot in an hour and a half. She That's reproduced it. Wait, 
So is she describing what we did on Saturday and Sunday, or is she saying she did it? I believe she's describing what you did. Oh, she described what I did. So it's on the FSM practitioners page. Perfect. It was it was wicked cool. So it's so funny how this always happens. On my list today, you kind of summarized quite a few points because we've been like um, like hijacking topics and kind of pouring them into the next week, into the next week, into the next week. And there's um, there's quite a few things here talking about some of the frequencies that you just talked about, about scarring and calcification. And one of the practitioners wrote to me, you guys are very good at talking about mobilizing with 13, 13 loves to be mobilized in the sports court. That's all I do is talking about how to move with 13. But I also love to do joint mobilizations with 91. And you had just talked about that. So 13 is our frequency for um, scarring and adhesions. And 13 is fantastic for like fascia and muscle and connective tissue that is striated. Nerve. Nerve. And the nerve. And the nerve. I use it with tendon. All the pliable tissue that you can think of, we like to use 13. I use it in the viscera. I use it in the abdomen. I know some people love the 58s for that, but 13, when I think of something as scarred or gummy or tacked down or something like that, I'm all about the 13. 91, we use that for hardening, calcification. And so where do things get really hard and calcified and gritty? on harder surfaces, like in joints. So you can run it on the joint and you can just run it on a bone. You can leave it there, but every bone has an articulation. So take the joint through a range active and passive. You could do your mobilizations with it. You don't have to be a chiropractor or an osteopath to do an adjustment on the joint. You can just have that patient do active um, range of motion and help with the, with the joint as well. PTs and even and PTs, OTs, DOs, DCs, athletic trainers, adjusting is a more vigorous form of yes, high mo- velocity. Yeah. Mo- mobilization is smarter. Yes. Because if you whack at something, it's gonna whack back. Yeah. So just I love that. That is so true. <laughs> I always think of like like FSM is like this like little stealth bomber that can just go in under the radar. Right. And we do our thing and we get in and we get out and um, yeah, you don't, it's like, it's even like with manual therapy before FSM. Right. I I show this video of somebody pounding chicken breast with a mallet because I felt like that's what I was doing. And I still see practitioners like using their elbow and I'm like, I get it. That's all you knew how to do. And you had to use your elbow so that you didn't kill your hands, but there's a whole new way now. And it takes a little while to appreciate that. That's actually the hardest part of the core is teaching experienced manual therapists, the better they are at what they do, the worse, the harder the core is because they have to, they have two days now to unlearn 20 years or 12 years of of muscle memory of how to do stuff. Right. And then I, so I tell them, relax your hands, relax your wrists, relax your fingers. And then you come to a place like the bottom of her foot or the rectus capitis posterior minor, where it is not relaxed. You are exerting a lot of force but slowly, it's, it's the difference between needing to be fast and hard to break something, which always has consequences, <clears throat> and following the frequency down and working with it. I had an idea. Okay. I, I need to ask you, and, and the rest of you can vote too. The most mind-blowing practicum experience is the supine cervical practicum and to get everybody used to at least using fsm the first thing we do is the neck and shoulder supine and then we do the supine cervical practicum and then the next day we do the lumbar this saturday well sunday night at eight nine o'clock as we were packing up 
I have the idea that on Saturday, we are going to do, like we have three people per table. We are going to do the supine cervical practicum three times on Saturday. So everybody gets that experience. The supine cervical practicum, for those of you that are listening that don't know the sequence, you start with the frequency to quiet down the activity of the medulla, which is where the accessory nerve is. And the only thing that frequency does is to relax the upper trapezius. And then the next thing, once the upper trapezius is quiet, then you can feel the deep cervical muscles, posterior scalenes, medial scalenes, those maybe the longest coli, and 40 and 10, quiet the spinal cord, will relax those muscles. And then you still have the splenius and the levator and all of those that are dermatomally innervated, so we do quiet the nerves, 40 and 396. And each time they run a frequency, the words that come out of my mouth and that are on the slide is, notice that this is the only thing this frequency does. Then after all of the neck muscles have turned to pudding, you go back up to the base of the skull and there are these bricks that are the suboccipital muscles. Well, the obliquus capitis superior and inferior and the rectus capitis major make a little triangle and their job is to keep C1 centered. Well, if the alar ligament is asymmetrical, one's longer and then one's shorter, those lateral muscles are going to be really, really tight. Is there any point in treating the muscles? No. Why are the muscles tight? Because the ligament is torn. So we run torn and broken in the ligament and use, that's the most fun of the whole weekend is watching their face go, So I don't know how we do it. I don't know how we do it every week, but we do this because one of the concepts that came to me right after our last podcast, well, it was the day after at the clinic was it's listening. It's not telling. And what we do is we listen to patients. We listen more than any other practitioner because of the tools that we have. We're not telling them. We're not hearing a fraction of their story and throwing drugs at them or adjusting them or smashing the tissue. We are listening to their words. We're listening to their story with our hands. We are listening to the tissue. And flight detour. Yesterday, this woman brought her two children, one's 19 and one's 24, from Missouri. They flew out. They're going to be here through Monday. And the first one that I saw is a 24-year-old. And she's had four knocked unconscious concussions in seven years. But she's had POTS, which is why she keeps getting concussions because she stands up and passes out and falls down and hits her head on the counter or the floor or the whatever. And then, and I just didn't add up. So I did a vestibular screening exam and she's nauseous all the time anyway. And so I did the vestibular screening exam and I had her fill out the BIVSS 18. So brain injury, visual system, symptom questionnaire. It has 18 questions and a score of 18 is predictive of a vestibular problem. Her score was 55. And in all of these years, Nobody has done a sensory exam on her. Nobody, she saw a neurologist. Nobody did her reflexes. That's a good face. Nobody did a sensory exam. Her pain diagram, well, it's like, duh, it's a 40 and 10. So that was easy. 
but the vestibular portion of it, she's had so many diagnoses and she's got POTS. Well, yeah. When did your vagus nerve get turned off? Excuse me? There's absolutely no way that you have POTS if your vagus nerve is working. Her pain level was a seven or an eight. We had a conversation about what vestibular injuries are and how they work. We ran 40 and 10. The fibro, anybody listening to this that doesn't know what 40 and 10 is needs to go back and read something. So we quiet the spinal inflammation in the spinal cord. Body pain goes from an eight to a one. 40 and 89 because she's clearly centralized. And I think I might've worked on her neck a little bit. And I did con concussion in Vegas and then 81 and 109, increased secretions in the Vegas. And I think that was it. She left an entirely different person. You can look somebody like that in the face and say, nothing you have scares me. Right. And she said, Nobody's ever said that before. Well, it's not that hard. And you're not crazy. And that's when she started crying. Yeah. You have a vestibular injury. And you had a vestibular injury before you were 10. Right. Because when you do the feels of gaze with her, if her first concussion was seven years ago, it's hard to suppress the bouncing in your eyes. If you have a head injury as a child, your brain learns to suppress it, but she has all the other symptoms. Can't go into public places, can't watch a movie, can't read, can't do this, keeps getting fired from jobs because she can't remember and can't. And it's like, yeah, it's not your fault. This is why. And then there were more Kleenexes. Yeah. How cool is that? <laughs> okay sorry about the detour but i couldn't resist no of course not i mean i don't even know where we where we where our last stop was like our it's not like oh, we're God, on yeah. like a, a a linear track like this is like some sort of it's like it, you're it's like my slide with the learning curve right it's the roller yeah. coaster my visual now is if you've ever been to london and you, you want to like ride the tube when you look at the map of all the lines this is how i feel we talk we have all these different um tracks that we are expecting tracks yeah um so somebody like that patient that came in with the vestibular who actually let's go right back to the crps patient for a minute let's yeah let's okay let's go back to her so one of the things I wanted to add to this patient, because she's an athlete, people who treat athletes, it doesn't have to be professional athletes, your weekend warriors, anybody that does a movement pattern over and over and over again, you're going to have some undoing and some retraining to get those results to stick longer and longer. Like you said, these collegiate athletes, especially, there's so much pressure on them to perform to stay in the game. They don't want to lose their scholarship. They don't want to sit on the bench. It is whatever it takes, suppress whatever I need to suppress, put me in coach. That is the only thing that's going on in their brain. So I found it, um, there is almost a panic with these patients when you start undoing the scar tissue, when you start normalizing things because they are, their sympathetics are almost always at this like freeze flight fight. And it's almost always in fight, right? With athletes, they just are go, 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 go. It helps if you can give them something to do. So this girl, because she'd been supinating to avoid pressure yeah. on the, the metatarsals, first and second metatarsal. Um, after we got her foot normal, and she, her foot and ankle were normal. When you watched her walk, her the knee on that side was almost valgus. So yeah. it was internally, right? Yeah. So the knee and hip. 
And as long as you can get them something to do, they totally understand it. And I said, look down at your leg, look at the vastus lateralis on your left leg and the vastus lateralis on your right leg. And she said, oh, so what you need to do is when you get into the gym and she's, she's going to pro tryouts in December, when you get into the gym, exercise the vastus lateralis and the hip external rotators to get the foot more balanced so that it can rotate in and out. And I don't know enough about the mechanics. You would have known because I would have expected it to be the obvious. I mean, the opposite. But when you looked at her leg, it's like that knees inward and that knees straight and that muscles. this. So. And this was a soccer player. Yeah. Was it her planter leg or was it her stronger kicking leg? She's I mean, going. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, different. Very different. So goalies are, it doesn't matter what sport goalies have an insane amount of kinesthetic awareness. They're freaks of nature, how they can figure out where they are in space in relation to what they are protecting. Um, Oh, I wish you would have FaceTimed me. I need to be where you are all the time. That's it. We're traveling together all the time. Um, but going back to the foot, and this goes from anybody, regardless of um, whether you're doing wipe and load or your um, assessment skills are great. When you have a patient that you've just unraveled, no matter what you're treating, and you get them, hopefully everybody's doing a pre-exam and a post-exam at some capacity, you know, your standing assessment, your plumb line, that's a really easy one to always incorporate into your practice. I've found that some people afterwards, as soon as you get them up, it's like they're birds, their feet are like bird feet. And they're trying to like grab onto the perch or grab onto the floor because it is where they are in space. You don't know where they are in space. 81 and 84. 81 and 84. And 81 and 92. And 81 and 92. That's right. So I I do like using the 40s at first, especially with athletes, because like you just said, that white component is like that. Okay, you have to forget all about where you're finding your feet because you have new feet now. So let's just get rid of that. But sometimes it is just really quickly helping them reconnect with the floor. And so I'll do an up down scan all the time. What does their face look like? They go from like, Or like that confused searching, trying to find the pain, trying to find the discomfort, trying to feel the floor if they're really stoned. And then the, oh, I found it. And then that third step is, and I really like it here. And I trust where my feet are now. You can see all of that happening in real time. And the verbal instruction, all it takes to be hypnotized is to me physically relaxed and mentally focused. So as they're walking and trying to figure out where their feet are, the instruction that comes out of my mouth is slow down and feel the floor with your feet. Feel what the carpet, and then make them walk barefooted. Feel the carpet roll from your heel to your toe and because they're scared to, you're right. They're like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much fun. It is. And that um, instruction that you give them, I mean, everybody knows how to walk, duh, but the rolling, the connection going from heel through to toe is something that we don't typically think of, right? We march, we go, we just get from point A to point B. And that changes the mechanics that lets the foot roll, that lets all the mechano and joint receptors that are in the foot give proper instruction back to the brain to process again. Yeah. Man, I love this stuff. It's just, it's so cool. And then you get them walking backwards. Yeah. She did that automatically. Yeah, I didn't even have her do that. She, no, because an athlete wants to see every range forward, backwards, lateral shuffles, all of that. Yeah. 
Um, but you don't have to do that with athletes, right? Any person that stands and walks, I think I really feel strongly that you need to incorporate some of this into um, their post-treatment, especially especially the chronic ones that have had conditions for a while. Like, I don't think I really do this a lot with my acute 24 hour sprain strains. There's not enough time to get a bad mechanic. There's inflammation. Like that's your, that's your most important battle. Torn and broken. And the brain isn't going to do anything until it's not torn and broken. Right. This is a perfect segue to one of the questions that we had about spinal cord and dura stuff. When to use 13, when to use 124 based on symptoms? So um, it was using 13 and 124 on the cord and on the dura. So they were asking, is there a way to know to use 13 or 124 just based on symptoms? I never use 120 if... I never use 124 on the cord unless you've got acute transverse myelitis. And the challenge in the spinal cord is you really can't put tissue back that's not there. So if somebody's had a burst fracture, transverse myelitis, um, I've actually seen one or two spinal cord traction injuries. Yeah. In the spinal cord, 40 will take down the um, inflammation in the cord and reduce the body pain that comes from the cord. So this kid had the one with the brain injury had the 40 and 10 shoulders, elbows, hands, knees, feet, hips had that pain pattern. One of the practitioners at the seminar, she's an OT and they were treating her hip, I think. And I walked up and there was just something out about her leg that just didn't look right. And I think they were actually, they were treating her low back. And I walked up and I felt her leg and it was hypertonic. She's an OT. I said, you know what tone is, right? Reach down and feel your leg. That's tone. Oh, I never, I thought it was just tight. So for those that are listening, the difference, so even if somebody is a bodybuilder, the muscles are strong, they're big, they're firm, and you're working on football players with 6% body fat, there's not a lot of squish, but there's still give right? There's, if the muscle is at rest, there should be give to it. Tone was, somebody read a dictionary definition of it. The muscle feels hard when it's at rest and that's not normal. Right. So this OT who thought she had low back pain was increasing secretions in the spinal cord, increases descending inhibition. I don't know what neurotransmitter is, but the only one that makes sense is GABA. So that's increasing secretions in the cord is what you do when you're trying to reconnect the brain to the feet. Also what you're trying to do when you wanna decrease tone Scarring in the cord, the only time you do that, and scarring in the dura, the only time you do that is when there's restriction in motion that, in especially in trunk flexion or side bending, you should be able to flex forward and, or if you're laying on your back in the seminar, the the telltale is you bring your knee up, bring the patient's one knee up, and it has a hard stop at 90 degrees. That's not normal. In order to move your knee to your chest, you have to be able to tilt your pelvis and bring your tailbone, elongate your spinal cord and dura. And as you run scarring in the dura, and usually it's scarring in the dura, Rarely it's scarring in the cord, but scarring in the dura, 
as you rock the knee up and back, rock the other knee, rock them side to side because the dura has spiral fibers as well as vertical fibers. That's when you run scarring in the cord. If you have a paraplegic, uh, quadriplegics are worse, but paras, um, even when they're new, even when it's a new burst fracture or disc herniation that's gone really bad, 124, you can't put tissue back that's not there. And I have compassion for the people I, that tell me that I'm limited in my thinking, but you can't put tissue back that's not there. I don't right. think. I've no. never been able to. Right. Ugh. Oh, you and your segues. This is going two different directions. So, um, sorry. I agree. I barely use 124 in the cord endura. I, I had a case study. It wasn't this symposium. It was the one that we did over COVID live stream with this, um, very horrific motor vehicle accident patient. She had multiple, multiple spinal fractures, um, spinal cord, uh, terror, but it's also scarring. I mean, so she was a 124, she needed 124.77 on everything neck to feet, because I don't know if there was an extremity that didn't break somewhere. Maybe it was, it was, well, when you take your car off of 200 foot embankment, I oh. mean, typically doesn't go well, tears and breaks things. Yeah. But usually the um, the telltale sign about 13 is a restriction. It, when something is scarred is restricting something from moving and not necessarily connective tissue, right? When a nerve is scarred to something, you will never be allowed to traction that nerve. So there will be restriction in that range. Even when the connective tissue doesn't need the scarring, 13 needs to be run on 396. Yeah. So the, yeah. The brain is not going to let you move anything that is scarred to a nerve. So the first thing I run is scarring in the nerve. Right. Just knock yeah. that one out of the park. Minette yeah. writes, I have been using 13 Endura for torticollis kids. Yes. Outstanding. That makes well, total sense. The other, the other place, the, the other thing I do for torticollis is um, 40 and 94. Oh. The, Torticollis is the SCM and the upper trap. Yeah. And the paper that was written had to be, the treatment had to be designed to match the existing medical literature on the abnormalities in the connective tissue in kids with torticollis. So if you read the torticollis paper that we have from Cleveland Clinic, it's all about the connective tissue and the muscle she couldn't use 40 and 94 because it's not part of the medical literature. There's no, there's no way that anybody but us has a neurologic way to quiet down the accessory nerve. And then you have to ask, why was the accessory nerve jacked up in the first place? Right. Is it scarred at the base of the skull or as it enters the muscle? Is it, and I've had cases of adult torticollis where I just failed. I could 40 and 94 and I did everything I could think of, but I didn't think of using 13 in the dura. Right. That's right. You know, if there's rotation and it's stuck there for any significant time, it could make sense that it will scar on the shortened side. Right. And this is what I love about FSM is it makes you think. Where's it come from? What's involved? Yes. What do I know? What do I need to look up? Yes. Thank you, Manette. Um, going back to some of the questions that I didn't want to table too long. Okay. There was somebody had written, and I, I think it was on the JOT form, so I got a copy of it as well, is about somebody who had failed results um, with patients that were supposed to taking gabapentin. And I have not had that. I've had quite a few patients that were on gabapentin. I've made significant changes with them still. So I don't know. I didn't see your reply to it yet. Not a problem. So I'm not okay. sure. Um, and the, it, it is more likely 
So gabapentin is prescribed for neuropathic pain. Yeah. If you fail with, like if they don't, it's not that you failed, first attempt at learning. Um, if you aren't successful in treating them, it's a lot more likely that your model for what's wrong is wrong. Right. So is it, is it 40 and 89? Is it simply that in one of these head injuries? So this girl that had the 40 and 10 pattern, 40 and 10 did one set of things, but it didn't get it. Yeah. And I had to think about, she's hit her head so many times. What if it's thalamic? And so 40 and 89 is what got her to zero. So quieting down the thalamus. So the you have to, you don't have to, but one of the things that FSM encourages in practitioners is flexibility of mind. To right. be willing to change your idea about something if the treatment you choose doesn't work. It's probably, I hate to say it, but it's probably not the gabapentin. It's probably guess different so torn and broken in the tendon can make a muscle tight and act like nerve pain or entrap a nerve because the muscle's tight right and they give them gabapentin because they don't want to give them opiates right and i think the first line of thinking in somebody relatively new to fsm is or even before we 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 take our training Oh, the person has pain. Something's wrong with the nerve. Um, kind of. We treat the nerve first only because we can. Only because we can and only because it's kind. It's kind to get somebody out of pain first. And then you can delve deeper and then you can start, you know, extracting the root cause of it. But if that pain doesn't go down right away and right away within seconds to a few minutes maximum, you have to start rethinking, okay, it's not the peripheral nerve. It might be coming from somewhere more central. And you treat, well, speaking of being kind, if you're working on somebody that has endometriosis and abdominal adhesions, the first thing you do, and it's is 40 and 10. Yes. They are, the spinal cord becomes sensitized. And if that is the only reason that you have a custom care and a precision care, you have 40 and 10, 40 and 89, 81 and 84, 40 and 92, 81 and 92. You have all those basics, 40 and 396 on a custom care program to run 60 minutes or 50. And you run, you hook the patient up neck to feet to quiet spinal cord sensitization before you ever touch their belly. Yeah or their knee or whatever it is that has their pain level at a seven, you know for sure that the spinal cord is sensitized. If you've ever watched Jay Shaw's spinal sensitization lecture. <clears throat> yes. Okay, good. Because I thought when I read, I read it a couple of times and I was hoping it wasn't just me in a fluke. So can you think of any other meds that you found challenging to work with? Um, oh, statins. I mean, there's no fix. Right. There's like the mitochondria are dying <laughs> and they just, if they're on statins and you're working on, and they're not on CoQ10 and you're working on their muscles and the muscles feel like mud and you're not getting anywhere, the, you cut the visit short at 20 minutes and you say, there's no point. Right. Um, come take 400 milligrams of CoQ10, 200 in the morning, 200 at night for two weeks and come back. And I'm, today's visit's 20 bucks. Right. Cause I can't. You're not going to make a dent in it. Yes. Yeah. So um, the only thing. Good. Okay. Really quick question that came in before we move along. Are there new protocols for perimenopause, menopause, and or possible fibroids? Fibroids, yes. Small ones, yes. By the time they're eight centimeters, by the time it's a three-month, two-month uterus, 
can't get it done. Um, small ones, you can stop the bleeding enough that they aren't anemic, so they can have surgery. Um, I had a fibroid that my OBGYN was threatening me with action on. And so I wrote a uterine fibroid program that I run every single night on my magnetic converter and custom care for three months, went back in and the ultrasound showed, imagine that, the endometrial lightning was back to normal and the fibroid had not grown. So now it, she took credit for it by saying it was the progesterone that she um, right. prescribed. It's like, I don't mind sharing the credit. I'm fine with that. It's all good. <laughs> Jane popped a quick question in. Anyone had any success with 81, 423, 473 in ALS? Nope. Me neither. Can't put tissue back that's not there. Right. The, the thing with ALS and MS, the best hope we have based on the literature that we have is to slow the progression by turning on the vagus. It's an autoimmune disease. Turn on the vagus, find out when and why the vagus went off in the first place. So remember that trip to Mexico? And then 14 months later, you started having symptoms of MS. So find out, so turn the vagus on 40 and 10 and um, anti-inflammatory diet. And the other thing that happened yesterday with these two patients from Missouri, one of them had a viral infection when she was 18 months old and she developed juvenile rheumatoid arthritis when she was two and she's been on immune suppressants. So started with Embril when she was two years old. She's now 19 and she, you look at her pain pattern and it's a 40 and 10. So I ran that and I said, we're not going to get you. She's now on her third biologic. I said, we're not going to get you off of your biologicals. She said, oh, thank God. I thought my mom was going to, you know, I just am so sick of people saying they're going to cure me. It's like, yeah, no, that ain't going to happen. Right. She, my joints hurt. Well, yeah. Which ones? Well, my knees and my hips. So we ran inflammation. We ran fibrosis and scarring in the joint capsule and the synovium and had her mom move her hips and her knees slowly while we ran scarring in the synovium and the joint capsule. And then when she got up to walk, her, she listed her pain level as a two, but it was a lie. She's been in pain since she was 18 months old. So she has no, her scale is not normal. So she was also, her face was completely different. It was really fun. This and was a really fun hour. We're it, almost out of time. It, no. It's true. There it is. is true. We, have, oh. we have two minutes. I want to start. I want to start a new tradition with our podcasts in memory of George, because George was all about optimism and kindness. And we talk a lot about the stories that are challenging. We typically have happy endings, but there's always like a little bit of a, a, a struggle. So I want to make sure that we, we always have a um, inspiring story or some sort of inspiring comment from a patient um, each week. So because I surprised you with this one, I am going to just tell a really quick story about my patient this week, who I've been seeing for quite a few months, had a lot of trauma from a motor vehicle accident, some PTSD that went along with it. Um, he wants to be active. He's a very compliant patient. Um, 
but I've been able to get a significant decrease in his pain. Sometimes it lasts a week, sometimes it lasts two, but me being the therapist that I'm in, I'm always about, I want to get you out of pain. So I don't have to see you maybe once a month, every six months. And the other day he came up to me and he said, you know, if I have to come one time a week, but that one time I get six days of no pain, I can play all the sports that I want. I can sleep. I'm hungry. I'm in a better mood. This is the best day of the week. I can't, I don't want to go down to once a month. And I thought, yeah, like this is, Uh. this is great. You know, when with all this stuff and all the history. So, you know, for therapists, I think we're always in that rush to get patients cleared and out the door and like not coming back to see us. But some patients are totally okay coming once a week. And his optimism was so infectious that I was like, oh, thank you. So I wanted to share that. Like, yeah, we, we got somebody completely out of pain, returning to all the things that they love. And sometimes it's once every two weeks, but he doesn't want to take the chance. So he'll come once a week. And I think that's fair enough. And, and I think that's great. My, my ending story. Yes. Is about, it's a little different, but it's about balance. Mm. FSM is not the only answer. Right. The girl with the BIVSS of 55 needs prism glasses, baclofen instead of Zofran. And I am not going to fix that. And she can still have a life because she knows how to manage it. Right. Right. Um, Balance. I'm going to tell a story on George because I just found this out last night and I'm still kind of rocked with it. In 2018, we found out he had atrial fib bad. And that was in June. In November, he announced that he was going to stop taking Xeralto, which was the anticoagulant that he should have been on from 2018 until now. I want to do it with frequencies. I want to do it with supplements. And so he had microvascular cortical damage for four years because he wanted to do it with frequencies and supplements. And it's not reasonable. There is a reason that God invented gabapentin and Valium and baclofen and and frequencies and supplements. So somebody with a brain injury like this young girl, CoQ10, lipoic acid, concussion in Vegas, prism glasses, meclizine, and then all of those things work together. And I, that's, that's my, optimism is that there is room for all of us in the tent yes absolutely that's a that's that is that is so important okay i'm going to squeak in my quote because we've been doing a quote every time i love this one ready it says the most truly generous persons are those who give silently without hope of praise or reward that would be george that would be george thank you well, no, well, that would be George. I like getting, I, I, I quietly like getting a little praise and a little reward, especially yeah. from you. Oh, well, that's, that's easy to do. Well, easy to do. Altruism. I just love belief. It's so cool. Pain-free and happy is the best. Yes. Uh, Thanks everybody. Bye everybody. We'll see you next Bye. week. See you next week. Uh, wait, no, we no. won't see you next week. Oh. I'm going to be on a plane to Poland. I will be here next week. Kim will be here next week with a guest. A guest. Surprise guest. Oh, and when I go to Poland, I have one day, I think, to rest. Then um, I have three days with FSM practitioners and people that have read the resonance effect and people that are using the Mankeli and people that are using Time Waver McMakin. And then I have three days in three different cities 
at medical schools, oh. lecturing at medical physicians in medical schools in Poland. Wow. Just marinate in that for a little bit. And then I get to go to Italy. And then you get to tell us all about it. We're going to need like a, an extended podcast when you're back because you're going to have all the stories. Oh, that'll be really fun. Let's do it. Have a good time. All right. Bye. Bye. The Frequency Specific Microcurrent Podcast has been produced by Frequency Specific Seminars for entertainment, educational, and information purposes only. The information and opinion provided in the podcast are not medical advice, do not create any type of doctor-patient relationship, and unless expressly stated, do not reflect the opinions of its affiliates, subsidiaries, or sponsors, or the hosts, or any of the podcast guests or affiliated professional organizations. No person should act or refrain from acting on the basis of the content provided in any podcast without first seeking appropriate medical advice and counseling. No information provided in any podcast should be used as a substitute for personalized medical advice and counseling. FSS expressly disclaims any and all liability relating to any actions taken or not taken based on or any contents of this podcast.